Abarachamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, we thank you for your Shabbat. We thank you for this time to get together to worship you. Father, we thank you that in spite of all of the uh, technical aspects of how we do things in uh, the modern body of Messiah today, that, Lord, we recognize that with or without all of the, the technology and everything that goes into it, that we know you are here and you are moving in our midst. Father, we thank you for meeting with us and uplifting us. We thank you for breathing new life into us today. And Lord, we ask that as we open up your word that you will speak boldly into our hearts and our lives, that it will be your word spoken, your heart received, that nothing in me will be involved except that which you have ordained specifically for this purpose. Father, we uh, ask that you will uh, change us today in the message that as we leave here and move out into the world around us, that we will see your might and your power in our midst. Amen and amen. All right. So this week we uh, are reading for Parsha Devarim, uh, and for those that are loosely familiar, at least with the way the Parshot work, the uh, name of the book in Hebrew is based off of the first couple of lines in the Parsha. It's usually the most significant word in the first couple of lines of the Parsha, uh, and or of the book in this case, and the same for the, the name of the Parsha. So what we call in English Deuteronomy in Hebrew is uh, Sefer Devarim, or the, the book of uh, words, the book of Deuteronomy. And so if uh, Deuteronomy were an album, Parsha Devarim would be the title track. Deuteronomy is the final book of the Torah, and it is with Deuteronomy that Moses is explaining one final time to the second generation of Israel about what God has done for Israel thus far, and reminding Israel of their covenant relationship with God before he dies, before Moses dies, not before God dies, but before Moses dies, and the nation crosses over to the uh, other side of the Jordan. Deuteronomy is also an interesting book because it has been noted that the structure and form of the book resembles an ancient Middle East covenant treaty between a sovereign king and his vassals. Uh, and you can see some similarities in the way that the setup, uh, the, the divine orchestration of the book of Deuteronomy is established in comparison with, for instance, the Hammurabi's Code. Uh, so we see there's some similarities in the setup and the structure uh, of how these uh, these uh, ancient treaties existed and that Deuteronomy kind of carries about that same cultural aspect as a treaty. And so this uh, document of Deuteronomy serves as a treaty, if you would, between uh, the Lord as the king of Israel, as the king of all creation, and his uh, people, the nation of Israel, and those that would attach themselves with him, uh, or with Israel to him. So we see that it has a preamble, which is going to be roughly Deuteronomy 1, 1 through verse 5. Uh, it has a historical prologue, which is Deuteronomy 1, verse 6 through 449. It has a covenantal obligation section, which is Deuteronomy 5, 1 through 26, 19. It has a blessings and curses of what will happen if you do and what will happen if you don't section. Uh, Deuteronomy 27, 1 through 30, verse 20. And a conclusion, uh, which is Deuteronomy 31, 1 through 34, 12. The Lord, the sovereign, would be the king of the land that he was giving to the Israelites, and they in turn would want, were, were to love and obey him as his vassals. 
Israel's inheritance of the promised land is directly linked to their faithful service in their relationship with Adonai. This becomes much, much more obvious later in the book as we begin to read the blessings and the curses and is exemplified as we read through the prophets as they try to call Israel back from their sins in Teshuvah by reminding them of the destruction and exile that would come if they do not and later still their actual exile and destruction of Judah and of the northern kingdom of Israel uh, and of Jer Jerusalem because of the sins of Israel. So we look at Deuteronomy chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. If you have your scriptures, go ahead and open up to Deuteronomy 1, verse 1. If you don't have your Bibles with you, pull out your smartphones or your tablets or whatever it is you have with you that hopefully has a Bible app on it. And if you didn't bring any of that with you, not really sure what you thought was going to happen today. Deuteronomy 1, beginning with verse 1. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel across the Jordan, in the wilderness, in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, uh, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. It is 11 days' journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea, to where they are now. Now, Moses spoke to B'nai Israel according to all Adonai had commanded him for them in the 40th year, in the 11th month, on the first day of the month. After he had struck down Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon and Og, king of the Bashan, who lived in Ashtarot and Adre. Across the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses began to explain this Torah, saying, Adonai, your God, spoke to us at Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, saying, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn, journey on, and enter the hill country of the Amorites and all their neighbors in the Arabai, the hill country, the lowland, the Negev, and by the seashore, the land of the Canaanites and the Lebanon, as far as the great river, the Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Enter and possess the land that Adonai swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their descendants after them. According to the sages in the Mishnah, the numerous places listed in verse 1 of Deuteronomy 1 are not landmarks or geographical locations, but rather words of Musar or rebuke by Moses to the people of Israel. That is, instead of detailing their sins outright and just flat out calling them out for eternity, he alluded to them with code words, if you would. So the word Badmid Bar in verse 1, in the desert. That is the time that they complained, if only we would have died in the desert, Exodus 17:3. In the plain, Barava, that is uh, their most recent sin with the Moabite woman at Baal Peor uh, in the plains of Moab in Numbers 25, opposite the Suf or Mal Suf in Hebrew. That is the, uh, the complaint of Israel at the shores of Yam Suf or the Sea of Reeds at the start of the great exodus from Egypt. Paran, uh, that is the sin of the spies who were detached from Paran in Numbers 13. Tophel and Levan, Tophel, uh, or sorry, that is the, they're libeling the white manna, uh, the manna provided from heaven in Numbers 21.5. And Hazarot, uh, that is the, where Korach's mutiny against Moses took place. And then Dizahav uh, is the sin of the golden calf that's found in Exodus. See, as we said before, the purpose of the book of Deuteronomy for Moses is for Moses to take one last chance to remind Israel of the weight of what exactly is going on. They aren't on some random road trip heading off to Vegas or New York or California or wherever else. They are embarking on a final, uh, on finally entering into the promised land to take possession of it and make a home for themselves there and to reside in the land with the presence of God residing in their midst. 
Moses is reminding Israel of their experiences through the wilderness, uh, through the wilderness journey, so that hopefully they won't repeat the same mistakes over and over again. Notice in verse 2, Moses says, It is 11 days' journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kardesh Barnea. In other words, it is 11 days' journey from Mount Sinai to where they stand when Moses is speaking in Deuteronomy 1 at Kardesh Barnea, uh, opposite the Jordan, or uh, on the opposite side of the Jordan River from the Promised Land. He tells Israel that where they stand now is only an 11 day journey from Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, where the nation encountered the Shekhinah, the divine glory of Adonai, and heard the Bach coal or the voice of God for themselves. But because of Israel's sin, that 11-day journey took them 38 years to get from Mount Sinai to where they stand now at the shores of the Jordan River overlooking the eternal divine inheritance of the promised land given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all their descendants who come after them. Notice also, as per verses 3 and 4, that Moses doesn't begin the recounting of Israel's journey with, a blatantly, out, with, with blatantly outcrying uh, uh, of their sins one by one, as is clear by his talking in kind of a code, as we spoke of a moment ago. But rather than, he reminds Israel of the victory that God has just provided over Og and Sihon. So he doesn't begin specifically with their sin. He gives them kind of the, the, the code reminder of it. But when he goes to, to actually narrate where Israel's been and what they've done thus far he begins with the victory that God had just provided on the east side of the Jordan with Sihon and Og this is to encourage Israel that albeit what lies ahead may seem insurmountable in terms of the battles and the warfare that this ragtag uh, newly formed nation is going to face God will bring them the victory if they just faithfully trust him and fearlessly move forward and that's exactly what Adonai says to Joshua at the end of this Parsha, the end of Parsha Devarim in Deuteronomy 3, 21 and 22 and it's also repeated numerous times throughout, especially towards the end of Deuteronomy and Deuteronomy 31 but Deuteronomy 3 verse 21 says, I commanded Joshua at that time saying, your eyes have seen all that Adonai your God is, has done to these two kings, Adonai will do the same to all the kingdoms that are about to cross, that you are about to cross into. You must not fear them for it is Adonai your God who fights for you. Here's the thing, though. Deuteronomy is the final chapter in Moses' life. It is the final chapter in the wilderness journey of Israel, but it is also the beginning of Israel's future. Israel is gazing across the Jordan River to their future, to the promised land, to the eternal inheritance which was promised to our fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a groundbreaking moment in the history of the nation of Israel. enhance the size of the text so I could actually see it. Now i got to find my place again. There we go. But in order for Israel to fully appreciate where they are going, in order for Israel to fully appreciate what lies before them, they have to remember from where they came. It is in this vein that we see that Deuteronomy begins with God calling Israel out on their crap. And if you guys will forgive me, I'm going to repeat that phrase over and over and over again today. So just get used to it. Get comfortable. It's going to be awkward and uncomfortable a bit. But there's a purpose to this. There's a reason for it. And this is really what's happening is that God is calling Israel out on their crap. In order for Israel to appreciate the weight and significance of what lies ahead, they have to come face to face with what they are leaving behind. They have to recognize who they were 
and the mistakes made up to this point so as not to make them again and so as to walk forward in who God wants them to be. We see this same concept with Paul's letter in the Brachadashah, letters in the Brachadashah, in the New Covenant or the New Testament. In the midst of an effort to teach a necessarily spiritual concept and lesson, Paul calls his audience out on whatever errors and mistakes they have been making. Not because Paul wants to rub their faces in it, like one might rub a dog's nose in his own urine on the carpet, but because we must learn from our mistakes in order to move forward. This is one of the biggest problems I see in uh, the life and experience of believers and in our own walks is we fail to learn from our mistakes, from our past, and because of this we are doomed to repeat it over and over and over again until we finally learn what we have done and where we need to go. This is what Moses is uh, uh, trying to get Israel to, uh, to understand, what he's trying to get across to Israel. And this is still a lesson we must learn today as followers of Messiah Yeshua. Our past is not something to shy away from. It is not something to bury in some box in the darkest recesses of our closet. Our mistakes of the past are something we need God to help us overcome so they cannot trap us in bondage again and again. So we don't spend another 40 years wandering around aimlessly in the wilderness or in the desert. So we don't find ourselves exiled from the presence of God. But notice that even in the midst of calling Israel on their crap and reminding them of their errors made in our past, God is also still declaring his promises for our lives and for our future. Even after all the issues Israel has had since they left Egypt, God's desire is still restoration and renewal, and his promise is still the same. In verse 8 we see, See, I have set the land before you. Enter and possess the land that Adonai swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their descendants after them. So in the midst of him reminding of Israel of everything that they've done, because that's what the book of Deuteronomy is about, is reminding us of where we've come from, what the Lord has done so far, and where he is taking us so that we don't continue to walk in the past. In the midst of this, Moses still reiterates, uh, and, and ultimately God speaking through Moses, still continues to reiterate the promises that he has spoken to Israel. So you've got to understand, in spite of our past, in spite of our mistakes, God's promises are still real. They are still true, and they're still, still viable in our lives. God does not want us to be hung up on the past. He wants us to walk forward in the future and the promises he has established for us. Amen? Going forward to our Haftorah Parsha this week, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, Isaiah 1, verse 2. says, Listen, heavens, and hear earth, for Adonai has spoken. Sons I have raised and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Oi, a sinful nation, a people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons dealing corruptly. They have abandoned Adonai. They have despised Israel's holy one. They have turned backwards. Where will you be struck again as you stray away more and more? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. Notice that long after Israel has taken the promised land, long after Adonai has chosen Jerusalem to be the place where his name is placed, long after he established the eternal Davidic throne, long after the Beit Hamikdash, the temple, was, had been built, Israel 
is still learning the same lesson that they should have learned in Deuteronomy and in Numbers and in Leviticus and in Exodus. They're still learning the same lesson. The book of Isaiah is a cry of a father's heart, a cry for his beloved children to return to him. Israel has sinned. Israel has turned their hearts to the gods of the people around them. They have broken every single aspect of the covenant which Adonai had made and ratified with them at Sinai and again at the shores of the Jordan River in Deuteronomy. They had turned their backs on him and had been worshiping gods made by their hands gods that aren't even gods at all. Israel had judge after judge and king after king established over them whose job it was to help Israel maintain their covenant relationship with Adonai. Yet over and over for hundreds of years with both judges and kings, Israel was led astray by the very leadership established to lead them in righteousness with the Lord. Our sins were many. We broke covenant with Hashem over and over and over again. Yet the cry of God has always been the same. Come back to me. Repent and be restored. The entire message of the prophet of Isaiah was not meant to be about the destruction he foresaw over Israel and Jerusalem. It was meant to be about a cry of our heavenly father calling back his beloved children in his loving embrace. It was never meant to be taken literally as though Israel, their only option was for destruction. His, his, his hope, his yearning, his desire. Now God knew what Israel was going to do, but his yearning, his hope, his desire was that they would listen to the intricate message that is stashed all the way throughout the book of Isaiah over and over and over again. But if you simply return to me, if you simply make teshuvah, if you simply repent and come back to me, then I won't do any of this that I said I'm going to do. I just want you to come back to me. I just want you to return. Our sins were many. We broke covenant with Hashem over and over and over again, and yet He continually called us back to Him. This is exactly what we see with God calling Israel on their crap in verses 2 through 15, uh, and then the message flips in verses 16 through 20. Again, still in Isaiah 1, uh, verses 2 through 15, God is calling Israel out on everything that they've messed up on, and in verse 16 through 20, he begins to flip this message a little bit with what his true desire actually is. Verse 16, wash and make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Relieve the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says Adonai. Though your sins be like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they will become like wool. If you are willing and obey, you will eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured with the sword. For the mouth of Adonai has spoken. In Isaiah, much like throughout the book of Deuteronomy, we see God calling Israel on their crap. He reminds us of all the mistakes we have made, not because he wants us to dwell in them, but so that we don't make the mistakes again. More specifically, so that through his redemption and restoration, we will learn from them and walk in his promises. This Wednesday evening at sundown, we'll begin Tisha B'Av, or the ninth of Av on the Hebrew calendar. This is a day of great calamity in the eyes of the Jewish people. So many terrible atrocities have occurred on this day throughout Jewish history. And just to give you an example of a few, it was on Tisha B'Av, on the ninth of Av, that the 12 spies brought back an evil report of the promised land, which we see in the book of Numbers and are reminded of in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 1 verses 9 through 46. 
uh, the first temple was destroyed uh, by the Babylonians on 587 before Common Era on Tisha B'Av. The second temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 Common Era on Tisha B'Av. All right, l- let that sink in. All right, the, the spies bring back an evil report of the promised land on Tisha B'Av. The nation of Israel rejects the promised land on Tisha B'Av. And then, because of our sins, not once but twice the temple is destroyed and Jerusalem is raided because of this on Tisha B'Av. Um, the, the, the Romans killed over a half million Jewish people as they crushed the Bar Kokhba revolt and plowed the walls of Jerusalem in 135 Common Era on Tisha B'Av. The first crusade officially began in 1096 and 10,000 Jews were killed in the first month and that crusade began on Tisha B'Av. So everybody thinks about the crusades as though it was just dealing with Muslims in, uh, in Jerusalem and, and Israel. But the reality is, is that the crusaders on their way to Jerusalem were practicing warfare on Jewish villages and they didn't care because the Jews killed Christ and that was all that mattered and they were just in the way so they practiced warfare and slaughtered countless Jewish lives over the course of the crusades which began in 1096 on Tisha B'Av and 10,000 Jewish people were killed in the first month alone Jews were expelled from England in 1290 Common Era on Tisha B'Av. Jews were expelled from France in 1306. Jews were expelled from Spain in 1492 on Tisha B'Av. And one of the, the, the most common uh, kind of theories and rumors about Christopher Columbus was, if you do research, it appears as though Christopher Columbus was likely at least partially Jewish. One of his parents was, was likely Jewish, so he was Jewish. And the, the, old, the old story is, is that uh, uh, in uh, Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492 with ships filled with Jews because it was on Tisha B'Av in 1492 when they had to leave Spain and it just happened that at the exact same time as when he leaves with ships going to look for the new world. The Nazis' final solution began in 1941, leading to the slaughter of 6 million Jews throughout the course of the Holocaust and that final solution began on Tisha B'Av. In 1941. And this is just a very, 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 very small list of the number of atrocities over the history of the Jewish people that have occurred on Tisha B'Av. There are far, far more, and even within recent years. Following Tisha B'Av begins seven weeks in which the entire Jewish world is focused on introspection and repentance. Tishbab is known as a day of destruction and calamity for our people. It is traditionally a fast day, and it is a day in which we remember the destruction of both temples, which ultimately was brought about by our failing to live in covenant relationship with Hashem. But much like the words of Deuteronomy and Isaiah, Tishabab also carries an opportunity for repentance and restoration. Tishabab is also, I believe, the exact same day that our Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach, was immersed in the Jordan River by Yochanan Hamadbil, by John the Baptist. And if you pay attention to the way things play out in Matthew 3 and 4 and Luke 3 and 4, uh, the responses that Yeshua gives to the enemy in the wilderness when he's being tempted are from the Torah Parshot that would be read during the seven weeks post-Tisha B'Av, during the seven, mes- seven weeks of consolation after Tisha B'Av leading up to Rosh Hashanah. So when the enemy tempted him and he responded back, his response to the enemy came directly from our Parshot during that period of time. The Haftorah 
Parsha that he read when he went back to his home synagogue was one that used to be read uh, shortly right after uh, Tisha B'Av, right after the seven weeks of consolation. Um, and we see all of this kind of play out. We see that Yeshua's uh, immersed uh, in the Jordan River. And I believe, like I said, I believe this was on Tisha B'Av and the ninth of Av. And it was the beginning of Yeshua's ministry. So we often say that Yeshua's ministry began with him turning water to wine or it began with him healing or it began with this. I actually think that Yeshua's ministry began on Tisha B'Av when he was immersed by Yochanan Hanmatbil because his ministry would have then began with a message of redemption which is what he came to bring to all mankind. He would have been immersed on Tisha B'Av in the same waters on the same day that the 12 spies would have crossed and brought an evil report back to Israel. He would have spent then 40 days in the wilderness fasting, being tempted by the enemy. The exact same amount of time that the spies spent in the promised land causing the nation of Israel to spend 40 years, one year for every day that the spies spent in the land in the wilderness. Yeshua would have been immersed in the same waters that the spies crossed over. He would have gone into the wilderness where the nation of Israel was when they rejected it. He would have, in essence, spiritually speaking, redeemed the work, or, or symbolically speaking, redeemed the, the work of the enemy, redeemed the mistakes of Israel in the wilderness, rejecting the promised land, and then crosses back over just before Rosh Hashanah at the end of the seven weeks and goes back up to his home synagogue and then begins his ministry of actually going for three, three and a half years and performing healings and delivering people and uh, speaking the promised salvation that was to come and then ultimately laying his life on the line for our sins. Again, even with something as uh, uh, horrendous as Tisha B'Av, something as uh, uh, hard to focus and remember because of all the atrocities against the Jewish people, there is still a message of redemption to be found in Tisha B'Av. In Acts 3, we see Peter heal a lame beggar outside the temple. The people are amazed and perplexed at the same time, and many begin to praise God because of the miracle they had just witnessed. Peter then turns to the growing crowd and begins to proclaim the word of God to those listening. If you pay close attention to what he says here, you'll notice that Peter's words run along the same vein as those of Moses and Parsha Devarim and throughout the book of Deuteronomy as a whole. He calls Israel on their crap particularly for rejecting Yeshua and trading the life of a murderer for the life of Messiah. However, he reminds them that prophets of old foretold that this would happen. In fact, that it had happened, that it had to happen. But after calling them on their crap, Peter begins to preach a powerful message, calling those listening to repentance of Messiah Yeshua and to turn from their wicked ways. Keep in mind, this is after the outpouring of the Ruach HaKodesh and, this, and, and the, the, uh, some, some 3,000 3, coming to faith in one day because of that. Since that point, there have been countless coming to faith day in and day out, but because of the work of the growing body of Messiah. Peter is not afraid to proclaim the truth. Peter is not afraid to pick up the mantle of the prophets of old and to declare the need for repentance or teshuvah, the need to return back to the Lord. He picks up boldly the mantle of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and uh, uh, Zechariah and so on and so forth to call Israel in repentance, to call Israel in teshuvah. Acts 3, verse 17. Now, brothers, I know that you, are, that you acted in ignorance just as your leaders did, but that what God foretold through the mouth of all his prophets, that his Messiah was to suffer, so he has suffered. 
or sorry, so he has fulfilled. Repent therefore and return so your sins might be blotted out. So, so times of relief might come from the presence of Adonai and he might send Yeshua, the Messiah, appointed for you. Heaven must receive him until the time of the restoration of all the things that God spoke about long ago through the mouth of his holy prophets. Moses said, Adonai, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. Hear and obey him in all that he shall say to you. And it shall be that every soul that uh, will not listen to that prophet shall be completely cut off from the people. Indeed, all the prophets who had uh, spoken from Samuel on have announced these days. You are the sons of the prophets and also of the covenant that God cut with your fathers, saying to Abraham, in your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God raised up his servant and sent him, to find, sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. And the thing is, some 2,000 years later, the message is still the same. God is still calling us to make Teshuvah through the blood of Messiah Yeshua, to turn from our wicked ways and sinful ways and to find forgiveness, mercy, and renewal in Him. He is still calling us on our crap day in and day out. And if you haven't felt Him do that in your life, you might want to spend a little more time on your knees because you're ignoring Him when He's talking to you. And as a father, I can tell you that's not a good idea. Remember, just because we are believers doesn't mean we will no longer sin. It means that we have victory over sin, but we still will fail. And every time we sin, there is a need for repentance. There is a yearning in the heart of God for his children to come back to his loving embrace. The cry of the heart of God for his creation has not changed. He longs for our return, for our repentance, for our acceptance of the mercy and grace found in the blood atonement of Messiah Yeshua, that the prophets foretold, prophets of old foretold of, and that we see the prophets of the Brachadashah saying has already happened. He calls us to give him our all and to serve him faithfully, living out our covenant relationship with him in everything that we do. He has empowered us with the Ruach HaKodesh, with His Holy Spirit, so that we can not only know His heart and hear His voice, but that we may have the new covenant etched upon our very hearts, so that our faithfulness to Him flows from the renewal of His Spirit in us, not simply as outward works. As we prepare to close, I want to invite our worship team to go ahead and make their way back up to the Bema. As we approach Tisha B'Av this weekend, or this week, which as I said begins Wednesday night at sundown. So it's Wednesday night sundown until Thursday sundown. I want to encourage you to take this time to fast and to dig into the presence of God, asking Him to reveal to us the deepest, darkest things that we have tried to hide from the world, things we've tried to hide from Him, things we've tried to hide from ourselves, the sins that we haven't yet let go of that are causing separation between us and the Father. The sins that are giving the enemy ground in our lives that he doesn't deserve. As you've heard me say before, my base definition of sin is anything we do that damages the image and likeness of God in our lives. Anything that we do that doesn't glorify him. Let's take the time, uh, this time of introspection and repentance, this seven weeks between Tishbab and Rosh Hashanah, and ask the Lord to call us on our crap to break down all the walls we've built up around our hearts that have kept us from giving him our all and allow him to make a dwelling 
a tabernacle in our hearts and our lives. Let's seek the Lord during this season, during the this, uh, this season of renewal in His Ruach, for renewal in His Ruach so that the world around us may know and see His presence in us, so that the world around us may know that God is alive and well and moving among His people. As we prepare to read the seven messages of Isaiah, which more or less are Isaiah 40 through Isaiah 60, um, Starting next Shabbat as our Haftorah Parshot leading to Rosh Hashanah, let us heed the cry of our Father's heart through the prophet Isaiah to rend our hearts, to turn from our wicked ways, and to return to the Lord in full covenant relationship. Let us give Him our all in repentance and trust that He will restore our lives in covenant relationship with him. It is time that the body of Messiah lead the way so often the body has still walked so fervently in sin that the world around us doesn't see the power and presence of God. Instead, they just see a mirror image of themselves, but preaching at them instead. It is time that the body of Messiah, especially in the day and age that we live in, in the world that we see ourselves, uh, that we see all around us, it is time that we fall on our faces we spend honest time in repentance, seeking the Lord, drawing out all of those deepest, darkest things that even we don't want to admit to so that we can fully and wholeheartedly turn our lives over to Him. And in the days that lie ahead where things are going to get way more difficult for the body of Messiah, we can, knowing that the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, is fully active in our lives, we can be used by God to impact the world around us. Because as things get darker, what the world needs more is the light that we carry, the light of Messiah. And it's time that we start walking faithfully in that. Amen. Avarachamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, we thank you that your word continually calls us in repentance. We thank you, Lord, that your desire is not to punish and condemn us, but to restore and renew us. Father, we thank you that you give us example after example after example throughout your word of that perfect reality, of the reality that you want to restore us as your sons and daughters, as heirs to the kingdom of Messiah. Father, breathe new life into us as we approach uh, Tisha B'Av this week. Father, as we uh, uh, begin the fast of Tisha B'Av on Wednesday evening, Father, we ask that you begin to reveal to us your desire, your yearning from our, for our hearts. Lord, begin to call us on our mess, call us on our crap, so that we can be fully repented and devoted to you. That we can walk out of the grip and the reign of the enemy in our lives and walk faithfully devoted to you. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray. And everyone says, Amen.